Hey, is there anyone new here tonight who feels like really courageous? I'm not going to single anyone out, but anyone new here who would read a piece of scripture? It's like your opportunity to be known in our community right from the start. Yes? Okay, Great, well you're welcome to come drink from this font. Um, so, um, okay, Okay, um, so you're going to read there, and there it goes like a little bit of the page. Don't recognize it. where it says, you know, there like this part here would be really good for us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All the way. Quite long. Yeah. All right. Um, so it's Luke 15, 1 to 3, plus 11 to the end. Um, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the, son, the younger son got together um, all he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Uh, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was still in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and we had to be glad because this is your brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. Awesome. Give it up for Alex. I think this is undoubtedly, um, for me, one of the most beautiful passages of the scriptures. Um, I remember back, back in the day, I used to run this youth centre and we used to run a meal on a Friday night, um, which um, called the Jesus Meal. And it was the only time oh, in the Jesus. week at the youth centre we talked about faith. And we would share a different parable each week. And kids would, would tune in and tune out. But without fail, at the end of the year, the one that they most resonated with over and over again was the story of the prodigal son is a vision of a good father and coming home to a good father and being welcomed and when you thought you deserved to be shunned of being welcomed. Um, so it's an incredibly powerful scripture and a scripture that spoke to me um, enormously while I was in a monastery in Wales uh, over January and ended up reading a book uh, called um, uh, The Return of the Prodigal by Henri Nguyen, which I at the moment think is the, the greatest book I've ever read. Um, just an incredible, incredible book. Um, on this, where essentially there's an incredible piece of art around the prodigal son, and Henri Nguyen had this opportunity to sit for four hours on his own in front of that artwork in Russia. He managed to get this kind of secret let in and just look at it for four hours, and so the book is basically what God revealed to him as he looked upon this picture of the son falling in the arms of the father again. Incre incredibly, incredibly powerful. I was talking to a friend the other day, um, actually talking to Jess, and we were talking about how I was talking about how I'm hopelessly nostalgic. And I always think back to a better time. You know, like when I was a kid, I used to watch that movie. Um, did, did any of you watch the My Girl movies? Yes. So My Girl 2 was like set in like uh, LA or somewhere, like in the 70s. And it just looked so cool. And I always felt like I was made for that time. You know, <laughs> like I always like felt like, oh, I'm, I hunger to get back to this place I was never alive for. Um, and um, it's kind of like like any Wellington hipster, right? It's like, you know, wearing clothes you went alive for and listening to music you went alive for too. Um, and, um, but, but nostalgia literally means this. It means home ache. Home ache. Um, which which I, I really resonate with. Um, this idea that we all essentially have an ache to return home. And that is the human condition, is to return home to ourselves, that, that as a child we have the sense, I don't know if any of you feel this Enneagram 4 here, so I could be totally out to pasture, but that, um, that there was a time when it was simpler, and there was a time where there was pure joy, and there was a time where it was safe, and life got more complicated along the way. And that there is this desire that maybe we could return home, maybe we could return home to ourselves, and know that raw essence of who we were created to be. And then there's this desire to return home to, to land and to whenua, the places that, that we come from. Um, and that happens both at an individual level, but also at an indigenous level and a cultural level. I know that as first time going to the UK, that as the plane touched down at Heathrow, there was a sense for me of like, oof, this is where I come from. And then I think there is that ultimate homeache, that ultimate nostalgia, which is a desire to come home to God. 
to know God and, and to be truly known. But there is this little bit of a question with homecoming, and it is, will home be the same? So for those of us who have moved out of home, which I think is probably almost all of us, I've heard people tell these stories before where they go back home and the bedroom that they grew up in has been repainted, and all this stuff got moved into the attic, and it feels almost like a little bit of a violation. It's like, you what? You moved my stuff? You repainted my... You have, you have a Dutch Airbnb guy in my room? <laughs> what are you doing? You know, this, this fear, will it, will it be the same? What kind of home am I returning to? What kind of home am I returning to? And most importantly, who am I returning to? Who am I returning to? I remember when I was about five or six, I, uh, one day after school, my friend Lester Young um, said to me that he'd got a new computer game on his 486, and he said, come around and play this new computer game, it's the best. And it was like three o'clock, and it was just around the corner from primary school, and I thought, yeah, all good, like 10 minutes of gaming, whatever, we'll be fine. And then the next time I looked at my watch, it was five o'clock. And, um, and I'm like, five or six have just not showed up back home. And, um, and the series of things went through my head of basically who I was coming home to. Am I coming home to mum and dad who are furious that I'm late? Am I coming home to parents who were scared because where the heck is our child? They actually called the principal and we're going apparently all over our suburb trying to find me. Would they be relieved that I've come home. Who am I coming home to in that moment? What kind of a reception am I, am I coming to? And so the, the story of the prodigal son, which we look at today, is primarily about who the son is coming home to. What is the character of this father that he's coming home to? What is the nature of this relationship? What kind of welcome or unwelcome can the prodigal expect? We hear the prodigal son musing as he returns, maybe my father will take me back in as a slave. And I think at the heart of the prodigal son is this question for all of us, is when it comes to God, who do you think you're coming home to? Who do you think you're coming home to? So I want to look at three little scriptures from this. The first of those, early in the passage, he says, make me like one of your hired servants. You know, five times in this passage it talks about this idea of being a hired servant. And then you have the older brother, when he has this contempt for the father, saying, I slaved away for you. I was employed by you, I slaved away for you. And the brother saying, maybe I could be a hired servant. What does the son think he's coming home to? The challenge of the son is that he thinks he's coming home as an employee to an employer. He thinks the fundamental nature of his relationship with the father is as one who has to come home and complete tasks. Now I remember a few years ago when I was heading towards getting ordained, and uh, one of the things they do when you're going to become a priest is they make you write a lot of paperwork and a lot of essays. Um, they do a physical, would you believe it? You wouldn't know it to look at Anglican clergy, but they do <laughs> They do a physical. Um, so you, you paint a carpet and they take light and you know, they just make sure you're not, they're not going to ordain you and you die the next day. Um, and, uh, and so you do that, but they also do a psych evaluation. And so they send you out to someone to like make sure you're not like totally cooked. Um, and um, and so I um, I go out and I arrive I arrive at this like address I've been given, and it's this like lavender house, and with this path that kind of curves up to the front of it. I'm oh yeah, it's an odd shade of lavender. Um, and, um, and so I head my way up the path, and 
And what opens, the door opens, and the, the psych evaluation that the psychiatrist is in this like massive purple fur. <laughs> I, I'm not, am I here to assess you? Um, <laughs> and then we get inside, and it's actually like a Harry Potter scene. Like everything is purple. Like everything. Purple ornaments on purple shelves next to purple books next to, I don't know, like it was just like insane, just this massive purple room. And, um, and anyway, somehow, somehow this lady through her, her voodoo training managed to win me over and got me to this place of, like, of vulnerability. And, and she said to me at one point, she said, what is God saying to you at the moment? And I said, well, yeah, God's saying a lot of amazing things to Blueprint. Like we just had this, this person the other week, oh my gosh, they came to faith, it was incredible, and God was talking about this and that and that. And she said, no, 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 no. What is God saying to you? Oh, you should, you should just hear what's happening at Zeal. The spirit is moving. Like, it's, it's just incredible. Like, these kids, they're coming alive. No, 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 Scotty. What is God saying to you? And there was this realisation in that moment that for a long time I had no idea what God was saying to me. Because God had been my leader. He'd been my archetype. He'd been my visionary. He'd been my revolutionary. He'd been my model. He'd been my employer. He'd been the leader of the revolution but he had ceased to be my father. See, there's some problems here. If God is firstly your employer, and if you relate to him as one of his hired hands, then your relationship ends up dependent on three things I want to go through here. Firstly, it ends up dependent on your performance. It ends up dependent on your performance. Am I doing enough for God for this relationship? A performative perception of God takes our service, the things we do for God, which are meant to be worship, and turns them into the means by which we are accepted by God. Does that make sense? These things that we are meant to do out of love and generosity and service to God, because we do not believe we're coming home to someone good, instead become actions that we feel will maybe make us right with God. Hired hands think the relationship with the Father is about their performance. Secondly, they think it's dependent on a contract. They think it's contractual. We have contracts with employees. We have contracts with hired hands. The question that the person who believes that they have a contract with God would ask is, am I fulfilling my obligations to God? You know, a contractual perception of the cross takes God's deep love, which is him laying down a son for us, and turns it into a contract that God made with people so we could keep working together. We forget about the love and we think there was some kind of transaction and forget that this was about, about an expression of love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whomsoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus did not go to the cross so that you could work for him. Hired hands think the relationship with the Father is about their contractual obligations. Thirdly, hired hands think the relationship is conditional and therefore that this employee-employment relationship I have with God can be terminated at any moment. And this leads us to this constant question of am I still good with God? A conditional perception of God takes the work of God to save us and turns it into the work of women and men to earn our own salvation. It's really problematic because humans make really good humans but we make really lousy gods. Hired hands think they need to work for their acceptance and salvation in God. So we return to our prodigal son who is walking home, wondering if his father will make him like one of his hired hands. 
Maybe he won't be my dad, but he will let me do tasks for him. Maybe he won't trust me as a son, but he will take me on contract. Maybe he won't welcome me in, but I could live in the house with some conditions. Maybe that is how I could be back with the Father. Can you relate to this in your perception of God? Maybe I'm not good enough, but maybe I could work for him. Maybe I could do ministry. Maybe I'm not trustworthy, but maybe me and God could strike a deal. Maybe he doesn't want to be with me, but if I ask nicely and I have enough self-loathing, maybe he'll throw me some breadcrumbs from time to time. I ask you again, when you think of your relationship with the Father, who do you think you're coming home to? Are you coming home as a hired hand? Are you coming home understanding that it is about your performance, that it is contractual, and that it is conditional? Because that is how our prodigal comes home. When the prodigal arrives, the father says to him, this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. Eight times in this passage we hear about sonship. Eight times. I remember a few years ago we had a young guy come and live with us because him and his father had a really violent relationship and um, it was unsafe for him to be at home. And he moved into our house and, and really quickly um, he kind of got the Jesus buzz. He came, he came along to Blueprint and was really fired up and he got really into like Hillsong and, and all these like really terrible Christian metal bands. Um, but like it was kind of like he became like this warm fire in the corner of our house of just life and joy in God. And um, a few months later on this freezing like July, August, in the middle of winter, we took him down to uh, Princess Bay with a bunch of blueprinters and we baptised him. And it just kind of, it just felt like the fairy tale, you know? Like, this is like, this is it, you know, we're, we're living, the kingdom is coming. And, uh, and then over those next few months, gradually a few of our things started to go missing. Money started to go missing, phones started to go missing, um, his tags started turning up all around the neighbourhood. And, and we, um, we tried to sit down, we tried to talk through things, but gradually the relationship totally broke down. And uh, one morning we got up and, and he left, and we were like totally heartbroken. You know, we felt like, I don't know if you guys know how it feels to just really put your heart on the line for someone you believe in, even though it's risky, and to have that not come back. And there's a party sometimes that's like, why was I so stupid? And um, we didn't see him for a couple of years, and then one afternoon I was hanging out at Zeal and just sitting around with a bunch of our young people, and this guy comes walking through the door. And I thought, this is so strange. We haven't seen him for so long. Why is he here? And he comes and sits down and he just starts yarning about all this inconsequential stuff, just like kind of like latest Avengers movie, this, that, the other thing. And I'm like, oh yeah. And then he just sneaks into conversation. He says, I got a job today. I realised in this moment, I remember the spirit very like clearly being that this was the one home he could come to where he could be welcome and, and, and being able to say to him, wow, I'm proud of you. you know? And to invite him not as a, a hired servant, but as a son of our place, even after, even after all that had happened before. See, if God is firstly your father and not your employer, there's some things you can count on. You can count on the fact that this relationship is not sealed in performance, but it's sealed in blood. Just like you can never not be your mother or father's child, you can never not be God's child. 
Just like you can never not be your mother or your father's child, you can never not be God's child. You cannot change the relationship of God to you any more than you can change the blood in your veins. You actually can't. And that is what the prodigal didn't realise as he came home, saying, could I be a hired hand? As he didn't realise the very blood in his veins qualified him to come home. You can count on this relationship not being about performance. That's what we get with Jesus. That's what we get with the Father. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are. Secondly, you can count on the fact that you bear the image of God regardless of your circumstances and regardless of your decision-making. Right at the beginning of Genesis, it says, male and female, he made them. They were made in his image. We were made to reflect the glory of God, to look like God. You cannot remove his likeness from you, even if you pulled your own face off. You cannot. You are radiating the likeness of God even in your rebellion. His blood runs in his veins. His likeness is in you. You are the image of God. The third thing you can count on is the fact that his inheritance is yours not because you earned it, but because you are his child. You cannot forfeit the life he offers you because it is the life he offers his offspring. You can't. This inheritance doesn't belong to employees, it belongs to daughters and sons. Just like my father's will, you know, he owns a hotel. That doesn't go to the staff, that goes to me and my brothers and sisters. And that's because we are his blood. You can count on this relationship not being sealed in performance, but being sealed in blood. You can count on the fact that you bear his image regardless of what you do with it. You can count on the fact that his inheritance is yours, not because you've earned it, but because you are his child. That is good news, and that's what the prodigal didn't get as he walked home. That there was nothing he had to do, but everything he had to do was within who he was. Isn't that powerful? You sitting here right now are enough. You are exactly who you need to be to run into the arms of the Father and receive his love. There is nothing else you need to tweak. You do not need a blood transfusion to be someone better. You do not need cosmetic surgery to look like the image of God. No change is needed in you. Only the willingness that you say, the way of life I've been living does not work. I turn and return to the Father. Even when we come saying, maybe I'll just get to be a hired hand, but then what does the Father do? He says, oh no, so much more than that. Kill the fattened calf. Bring out the robe. Put a ring on his finger. Celebrate. You know, the Father does not say, my son who went away and squandered his money now came home. He said, the son who was dead has come back to life. Can you imagine the joy of a parent who believes that their very child has died and then has resurrected from the dead and stands before them? That is how God feels about us when we come before him. It's what it says in the scripture, that there is glory among the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents for us to come back and be the children of God. Galatians 4, 7, you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. And so I ask you this evening, who do you think you're coming home to? A performative, contractual, conditional father? No. A father whose blood runs through your veins. A father who bears a resemblance to you. A father who says, everything I have is yours because you are mine. Who do you think you're coming home to? A hirer of labours or a father of sons and daughters?
Third passage I want to look at, jumping back a little bit. says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Can we just read that? Like, can, we, can we imagine that? Can we just grab hold of that a little bit more? While he was still a long way off, while he was down the path, coming back, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Not with rage, not with fury, not with, well, I'm going to have to be careful I don't enable him. But filled with compassion, probably grabbed up the edge of his robes, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and began kissing him. What joy. And I think we all know the experience of stepping into a space where we're unwelcome, right? Something um, Bishop Justin and I often talk about is... um, when people invite you to speak at a conference or something like that, and they've maybe heard a podcast or they've read something, and then you turn up and they're just obviously disappointed. <laughs> like, we thought we were getting more than you. <laughs> and the conversations are very short, <laughs> and you're clearly not dressed in the right clothes, and on they move on. And I pretend that's not sore, but that actually is sore to come to a place. Where you feel like who you are is not good enough for the space you step into. Like people wanted somebody else. But how good does it feel to come to a place where you are truly welcome? Like how good is that? And our seasonal guy group this week, we were talking up with, with Sam Wood. And he was talking about when he drives up to the Waikato. And, uh, and he pulls up his car. And his dad will be in a robe, not a robe like in this, but like a bathrobe. And um, I imagine it's kind of blue and pilled, is that right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. With a cup of tea in his hand, did you say? Something like that? Let's put a cup of tea in his hand. And and comes like running down the driveway or something like that, stands by the car, gives you a big hug, eh? And what does he say to you? I just always welcome home. He's all really excited every time. Yeah, how beautiful is that? I can remember as a five or six year old us turning up in Christchurch. Most of my family are from Christchurch originally and going to Hornby, 11 Tauranga Street, where my um, grandma lived. And the moment our car pulled up, you'd hear this, Woo! <laughs> so excited, like this, like, like grandmotherly, um, I don't know, <laughs> call of the wild. <laughs> And then she would like step down the steps holding up her petticoat and a cloud of like Marlborough would follow behind her, you know, tapping a cigarette on the way down the path. And then she would envelop you in her arms until the kisses made your face go red, you know. And now I just remember the sense of just like powerful welcome in that. But she was just, there could have been nothing more important to her in that moment than that her grandchildren had come home. There's a deep and beautiful assurance and knowing that the one we come home home to loves us unquestionably and is pleased to see us. This is what God offers us. It's what Jesus offers us. It is a liberating, powerful force to know that who you come home to loves you deeply. That there is nothing, nothing, nothing you can do to lose what God has given to you. Nothing. And if you, from this rant today, if you want to remember one thing, here it is. Here is your one thing. Here is the close notes. Here's what you can quote on Insta if you want to. Our lifelong journey as Christians is to move from hired servants to sons and from debtors to daughters. 
Our lifelong journey as Christians is to move from hired servants to sons and from debtors to daughters. That is our journey with God. Is to move away from employment, to move away from the conditional, to move away from the contractual, to move away from the performative. Our lifelong journey as Christians is to move from hired servants to sons and from debtors to daughters. That is our journey. And when we do that, we cannot help but make more sons and daughters in the world around us. We just can't. We create Fano, and that Fano keeps growing, and it keeps growing, and it keeps growing. See, if you devote your life to being an employee of God, you will never, ever, ever be good enough. And if you devote your life to being an employee to God, you will do things that look noble, but they'll always come out of some kind of twisted obligation. And if you devote your life to being an employee of God, you will fear the day where you are no longer good or capable enough. But this passage challenges us. But what this passage challenges us with is not to define ourselves by what we do, but by the essence of who and whose we are. We cannot take his blood out of our veins. We cannot remove his image from our face. We cannot forfeit our status as his ears. These things are reality as gravity is reality. God is in your bones and he is not letting go. He is not letting go. So I ask you that question again as we finish tonight. Is who do you think you're coming home to? Who do you think you're coming home to? As we walk this journey, this lifelong journey, of realising that we are sons and daughters, or daughters and sons of the Most High God, who do you think you're coming home to? Do not come home as a hired servant. There are great, and I've been a part of this, there are many noble-looking things you can do that are just employment to Jesus, but are not abiding with him. Do not come home as a hired servant. Come home as a son or daughter. Why don't you close your eyes for a second? I'm going to ask you that question a few more times over a couple of minutes. Who do you think you're coming home to? Who do you think you're coming home to? Who do you think you're coming home to? Father, we invite your spirit to come and minister to those deep places in us that don't believe we are worthy of the love you offer us. Lord, we invite you into those places where our own mothers and fathers have made us question whether you can be a good father or mother. Lord, we invite you to do a powerful work in us tonight that understands truly your character and our relationship. Just stay in stillness while I invite the, the music team to come up.